Elvis, 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 Hello, folks. We're going to begin with a little story. A real story, 100% true. Happened to me, in fact. Late yesterday evening, I received a call. A telephone call was placed to my number. Morgan called me, and I answered, and I said, uh, hello. She said, Mathieu. I said, uh-huh. She said, why didn't you tell me? I said, hmm? She said, why didn't you tell me that Change of Habit is the worst Elvis movie? <laughs> Morgan, would you like to explain? It's... Oh, okay. Let me put it this way. I don't know what was worse, the blatant use of the N-word or the torturing of a small child. I mean, it's real bad. It's not like... Is it worse it than is. Stay Away Joe? It is. It is worse than Stay Away Joe. Really? Because Stay Away okay. Joe was a caricature of a group of people that was very mean-spirited and contributed to a lot of damage, a lot of social damage that was used as a weapon against indigenous people for a long long time and this movie the reason why it's worse is because instead of being a caricature of a group of one people it was a caricature of every marginalized person possible it made fun of women who were victims of this is also a good time for the content warning just so you guys know made fun of people who were victims of rape sexual assault it made fun of people who had autism. And I think actually the people who had autism got it the worst in this film. I've never... There were parts where I was watching this film and they were talking about autistic people that I audibly gasped and was like, oh my God. Like it was shocking. It made fun of black people. It made fun of Puerto Rican people. It was awful. It didn't make fun of gay people, I don't think. Oh, oh no, it did. Sorry. It did actually also make fun of gay people. So that's in there too. The only people it didn't make fun of was the two racist shithead landlord ladies. <laughs> Sorry, excuse my language. <laughs> this movie is really, 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 really bad. And the worst part about it is that it has one of my favorite Elvis songs in it, which is um, Rubbernecked. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's worse than Stay Away Joe. It's worse than Flaming Star. It is the worst Elvis movie ever. Okay. How much of this do you think is just a product of it being a movie made in 1969? Sure. Absolutely. But every single movie of Elvis that we have watched has been a product of its being made in 1969 or before then. And none of them were half as mean towards the subjects of their film as this one was see i think you're interpreting meanness and misguided as they were this was completely 100 percent genuine they went about it yes, the completely wrong way they were trying but... to be mean they were not trying to be mean with the way that they portrayed certain aspects of this in the same way that they probably felt they were not actually being mean to indigenous people when they made Stay Away Joe. But certain mischaracterizations of people in this movie were so egregious that they themselves would have caused the same social disruption amongst those marginalized communities by white society, essentially. There's a lot of like rationalizing that happens in this movie. 
you know, it's not just that they were trying to be nice. It's that they were trying to rationalize that, oh, black people, Puerto Rican people, gay people, whores, prostitutes, people that have a difficult time. They're like that for a reason. They are acting the way that they are for a reason. And we're just the good white people. And we're just trying to save this crazy world from tearing itself apart. Think of the children. You know, it, it's just rationalization on the part of white folks with a studio and Elvis as the poster child for it. Not to say that they're trying to be mean, but it was wrong what this movie did. How this movie talked about certain things was wrong. A really good, I'm going to point out that, so there's a black woman in this cast, and this is the first movie where they tackle the race issue, where they actually finally address, you know, this person is black. They're not just a black person existing in a white world. They are a black person with a black identity that is attached to that. <laughs> and, you know, there's some parts of this that maybe they got right, it was great to see this young, intelligent woman in a position of a good job, passionate, driven, but it also solidified this idea that a lot of people had at the time that in order for black people to be participatory in white society, they had to be exceptional. And if you have to be exceptional in order to engage with society, society is fucking wrong. That's how it is. And so some of that they got right, but then they tried to shoehorn in this point about like the Black Panther Society and about Black nationalism and about Black power. And that's fine if they want to try and address that, but you can see how the message was made to fit a white agenda and not a Black agenda. And in trying to appropriate black culture to suit a white agenda is where they faltered and where they made mistakes and that's the same mistake that they made towards the puerto rican depictions in this movie towards the people that had mental illnesses it's not that they were trying to be awful it's that in trying to appropriate these concepts to suit a white narrative they damaged these people they damaged the way People who went and watched this movie would later go out into the world and interact with people from those communities. Sorry, I'm, I guess I'm ranting a little bit. <laughs> you should you should listen. I listened to the commentary track for this, and they were very generous to this film. Really? Mm -hmm. Good for them. Were they white? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, that's catty. That's a catty move. I, I am a little more critical, I think, of this sort of thing than maybe the average person is as well because of my background and because I do spend a lot of time when I watch media, especially media that's been dated, I'm hypersensitive to the way that they are engaging with marginalized communities because when push comes to shove, this is not a Black-owned studio. It's not owned by an autistic person. It's not owned by a Puerto Rican person. It's owned by white people. And their agenda is to make white people comfortable with engaging in a world where Black people, Puerto Rican people, and artistic people are starting to show up in their societies. It's not for Black people that this movie was made. This movie was made for white people. That's the... I don't know. You tell me about it, Matt. Let me know 
G- give me the deets. <laughs> I just want to say, I think when we were stuck in like the most cookie cutter of the Elvis movies, deep down, we would say a thing like, man, I really wish Elvis movies would try to be about something, or I wish Elvis movies would include more minority characters. And then the monkey's paw curled its fist. Yeah. And this is what we got. This is what we got. Yeah, that that's exactly right. You're exactly right. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> we got what we wanted, but we didn't get what we wanted. <laughs> no. It's like, this is the final Elvis film. Yeah. So they're trying to make up for lost time by simply like shotgun, trying to hit everything Everything. all at once. Yeah. Just throwing it all to the wall, seeing if it sticks. Uh, None of it sticks. God. I knew from the get-go, there was a scene in this movie where I knew right away it was going to be bad. There's a scene where the nurses like go to their little landlords and they're like, we don't want you here. We think you're hussies. And that was bad enough. Like that was I was like, okay, this is an Elvis movie. But then they go to his office and they're there to be nurses at his office because Elvis is a doctor in this movie. Dr. John Carpenter. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We'll get to that. (laughs) And um, he says to them, well, it's a rough town. You know, two of the nurses were raped, one of them against her will even. And that was the point where I was like, holy fucking shit. This movie is bad. B-A-D bad with a capital. I wouldn't let children watch this movie. (laughs) Oh, okay. And here's the best part. Here's the best part. This movie was rated G. Oh my God. Which of course (laughs) meant something different back in the day because there was literally just like the two extremes. There was just G and then there was like R. There was nothing in between. Right, yeah. But this was like a general audience's film. You know, uh, this is a great movie to sit down, maybe your 11 year old and watch this movie. And this would be a great introduction to tell them about how people treated and thought about marginalized communities. You know, and you can you can take this movie and, sh- and say, explain to him, like, have you seen other movies where they say things like that to black people, to women, to children? How does that make you feel when you see people speaking like that? Do you see that in other movies? You don't, because in back then, this was how people treated those people and they thought it was okay to behave that way towards people because they were racist or bigoted or whatever. That's that's the only time that you would sit a child down to watch this movie is to teach them why it's wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's bad. So let's, we're going to back things up. We're going to begin, let's talk, this movie is called Change of Habit, 1969, yeah. aka Undercover Nuns. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know, but like there was kind of a time period, especially with the sound of music, like nuns were like a, a big commodity yeah. like there's a lot of yeah, nun movies i know nun exploitation yeah. was, ha- <laughs> was run rampant god even um, see even when women are like committed to a life of celibacy they're not exempt from objectification even when mm-hmm. they're like no we're out we're out of the game none for us thanks People the, are the still opening like, montage of them removing their habits and getting, getting into plain clothes yeah <laughs> and we see like the stockings and it's like all these lingering it's, it's, shots it's very weird. Interspersed with like cru- the crucifix and like iconic, like <laughs> yeah! religious imagery. Oh my God. One thing that was pointed out in the commentary track that I missed is one of our, our great transitions that we love to point out. They found it, uh, they pointed out to me was that when they, so once they they fully like changed, they're leaving and then it like the camera pans up and then zooms in on Jesus on the cross. And then it like cuts from that to a cop directing traffic and his arms are outstretched. Oh my God. <laughs> It's like a split second. I didn't see that. I, I totally missed that. Holy Jesus. Yeah, man. me too. And I had to rewind and, and check because they mentioned it. I was like, oh god. my god, I guess. Yeah. 
another problem, <laughs> I, I guess, that is really exemplifies the tone problem that this movie suffers from. It would have been one thing if they wanted to go full tilt into actually diving into some social issues. And if they didn't nail it, then it's like, all right, I get it. It's the 1970s and white people don't know how to talk about anything that doesn't have to do with white people yet. It's okay. Like, I get some of that. But they didn't do that. What they did instead was they made a comedy movie with funny jokes uh, and pat well, and, you know. Very few and far between. For the most part, I think this has... Not few and far between enough. And it, it, well, okay. the jokes themselves were not, like, ever present the way that they are in a lot of other Elvis movies. But the fucking framing devices. Mm. You know, the scene where the little nun is, like... There's a scene where she goes in, back into the grocery store to protest and stuff. And it's it's all a big joke. It's haha, It's very funny. And blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's fine. That's a fine scene on its own. But the fact that it's in a movie where they're handling such or they're trying to handle such sensitive issues. Oh, my God. Yeah. The most I mean, think the thing, even though this is all aged poorly, I think shockingly, <gasps> so the stuff that has badly. aged the worst is it's views on the police and the church specifically. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I like I like the part where some people are starting a freaking riot at the big block party and the Black Panther comes in to settle things down. And my first thought was like, oh, here come the police to arrest the black people. And then the police just came over and were like, everything looks good here, guys. I think we'll trust your judgment this time. And I was like, that never fucking happened. <laughs> Not once did that ever fucking. It's because happen. not every cop is as nice as Ed Asner. Apparently, yeah. we'll, get, we'll talk about the cast. <laughs> so, God damn it. Before, this is the one. Get on, yes. Hold on. What is, in your opinion, the worst scene of this movie? What for you was the scene where you're like, I have to fucking stop, <laughs> essentially. Right. I think. Well, I feel like it is the rage reduction yeah. therapy scene. But I knew that was coming because that's the only thing I knew from this movie. Because you told me. Well, that you the knew thing about was, this. I knew about it, but I didn't see much of the clips from it. Right. I didn't see the part where he's torturing a fucking child. I didn't see that part. I saw the part where he was like kind of coddling her afterwards. And just so you guys know, like, I'm a bit sensitive when it comes to certain things in my movies. I don't like to see animals mm. getting, even like fake animals, if I see them getting like harassed or not even abused, but just like bothered. Like, you know, the cow from Lake Placid? Yes. I can't watch Lake Placid because I feel so fucking bad for that cow. It depresses me to think about that cow still. <laughs> <laughs> Just and to explain for the audience who doesn't know, that there's a cow that gets lowered into carried a by a helicopter. Helico a real a harness. cow. A live cow. Yeah. And you can tell the cow is unhappy. It doesn't want to be in the harness. <laughs> anyway, so I'm sensitive to things. I'm very empathetic to those sorts of situations. And this scene was actually very difficult for me to watch. I almost started crying. I was very upset. It's really long. It's the yeah. centerpiece of the movie, too. This is the exact halfway point of the film. And it goes on, which, I mean, in one way, it's like, right, they didn't want to just show... Because when you first said, like, oh, he just gives her a hug and she's better. Like, yeah. I was picturing literally just, like, just a, a quick and then she's suddenly no, changed. Like they they fucking hold her down while she's For, like, the whole day, out. it looks like. Yeah. She's screaming and crying and her parent has to be escorted out of the room because it's so traumatic for her to be watching them fuck around with her daughter like that. Like, it is messed up. It and is yeah, there is a, There's no scientific basis on any of this, but at the time, there were some doctors and some people in the medical field that, like, gave credence to yeah. such a thing, which is God. just... 
Oh my Terrible. god, it's so awful. When I that's like that's what almost got me crying because I I sat there and I was like, oh my god, people did this. People fucking treated people with autism like this. And I knew I've always known that the health industry has been disproportionately cruel and unjust to people with autism, people with learning disabilities, mm-hmm. uh, the whole spectrum, all of it, right? But to see it physically being played out to serve a narrative purpose of justification was very painful, was very upsetting. And I I would not recommend you watch this movie if you have a weak stomach such as I do. If you can't handle watching cats hissing in movies because you know that the cat is being made angry, or if you can't stand seeing dogs that are upset in movies, don't fucking watch this movie. <laughs> awful there's there's also a an attempted rape scene in this movie so if, yes. if you're sensitive to that as well yeah this movie fucking has it all okay now we know what the worst scene is let's talk about this train wreck <laughs> mm-hmm. so this was released november 10th 1969 mm-hmm. it's the one and only film released by universal pictures that elvis did yeah fuck universal for making this movie <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, we're going to skip ahead before we get to the director and others. There's like three different screenwriters and then two story by credits. That's when you know wow. you're in trouble is when you see that many names with writing credits is because that's just way too many. That's why there's so many ideas, so many conflicting things. Right. No one's getting enough time for any one subject. Right. So we're going to go through them real quick. The three screenwriters are James Lee, 27 credits. In 1967, there was a TV movie adaptation of The Diary of Anne Frank. Mm. He wrote that. Then there's S.S. Schweitzer. He has 45 credits, did lots of TV, only a handful of films, including two right after this. They were story by credits for these war films. There was one called Hellboats and the other one called Hornet's Nest, <laughs> 1970. Hellboats. Yes. Very good. And then there's Eric Berkovici, 43 credits. And the year before this, he co-wrote the screenplay for Hell in the Pacific, which is another war film, 1968. But that one's actually really cool. A lot cool. of wartime guys on this. Yes. Strangely enough, because this has nothing to do with, you know, the subject matter here. But um, Hell in the Pacific is about Tashiro Mifune oh. and Lee Marvin. And it's during the war and they get stuck on an island together. And Tashiro Mifune only speaks Japanese throughout the whole movie, right? There's no translation oh, or subtitles wow. for him. And Lee Marvin is the American and they have to try to like coexist. Wow. It's like really great. Yeah. It's like an underseen little film. So yeah, that's that's a recommendation. Mm, okay. And then your two story by credits. So one is John Furia. Okay. 28 credits. I saw that he wrote the 12th episode of Long Street. We mentioned Long Street last time. Mm-hmm. And then he has a story credit and co-wrote The Singing Nun from 1966. <laughs> God. <laughs> which we've come we've come full circle because the very first time that I mentioned The Singing Nun was when you accidentally thought I was talking about the other the, thing. The fl- yeah, the fly. If we don't mention The Flying Nun this episode, <laughs> if there isn't somebody who knew somebody that worked dad, on, this, on, on this last episode, I think the fans might have a combined heart attack. This is as close as we get. Okay. We're going to talk about The Singing Nun from 1966, which I didn't mention in the Viva Las Vegas episode. We talked about the writer of Viva Las Vegas was Sally Benson. She was the one who co-wrote the screenplay for The Singing Nun. I see. Yeah. We only mentioned that she had worked on Mimi in St. Louis and some other things that she had done. So yeah, somehow missed that, but there you go. And he co-wrote that screenplay and also had the story by. Cool. And then the other story by credit is Richard Morris, 16 credits. So he wrote the book for the play The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Do you know about this? Uh... It sounds familiar, but I'm going to say no. It sounds familiar. Okay, yeah, it was, it was a play from 1960. It was turned into a musical film in 1964 with Debbie Reynolds. It's about a real lady. She was on the Titanic and then was one of the survivors. 
Oh. And so that's why she earned the nickname the unsinkable Molly Brown because she was like a socialite and there was this whole thing. Wow. And then he also wrote the screenplay for Thoroughly Modern Millie from 1967, which co-starred Mary Tyler Moore. Hmm. That was also done by Universal. There, there was like a whole like four picture deal that Mary Tyler Moore had with Universal. And so this was the fourth picture change of habit. And then she took a break. Hmm. Then she did the Mary Tyler Moore show for all of like the 70s. Right. right, right, right and she right, didn't right. return to films until 11 years later in 1980 when she appeared in Ordinary People. Hmm. which was the best picture winner for that year. And she was nominated for best actress. Wow. So yeah, wow. those are the writers. The director is William A. Graham, 124 credits, tons of TV, TV movies, but only 11 feature films. Mm-hmm. Here's the, I'm going to mention two before this movie and then the two after. Okay. So the two okay. before was a 1967 movie called Waterhole Number no. 3 which is like a comedy Western treasure hunt movie. Okay. I think I'm pretty sure that it was due to the popularity of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. You know, that they, this became a thing where they'd have these big ensemble casts. Right. Where someone would find out the location of some money, right? And then you'd have all these different parties running to try to get to the money first. And, you know, oh, they right, rebooted like that race. concept with Rat Race. Yes, was in the 90s rat version race, of that. Yeah. So every so often they bring out this whole idea. And it's 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 fun to have this. This was like a lesser known one that I didn't know about. But it, it has James Coburn in it pretty much doing a Clint Eastwood impression the whole movie, apparently. <laughs> He's like Because it takes place in the Old West, but it's the same idea of like he finds a map or something and then... A bunch of different people are trying to get to the treasure first. And then uh, William Graham also directed Submarine X-1 from 1968, which is a war film about submarines, <laughs> World War II. Okay. Then he does Change of Habit in 69. Then the two films after this, we've got a 1971 movie called Honky. No. That Here's the description. No. Sheila, an affluent black teenager, begins no. dating working class white teen Wayne no. and asks him for help to sell a kilo of marijuana. Oh my god! Uh, what the hell's wrong with this guy? I, this is the pivot point, obviously. Suddenly, after Change of Happy, he was emboldened to be like, "I'm gonna make message movies about <laughs> social messages." Mm. Oh god! Second one, 1972's "Cry for Me, Billy," which the description is even shorter and just says, "Drifter falls in love with Indian girl with tragic results." Oh my god! I hate this guy. I hate this guy more than I hate what's his face. Norman, <laughs> Norman Torog. Norm, Norman Torog. Officially, we the found worst the true director. villain. <laughs> he was hiding in plain sight, waiting the whole time. Norman Torog died, and from his ashes was born a phoenix so fiery it burned <laughs> my very soul. Let's talk about the cinematographer. Yeah, because the movie doesn't look terrible. Yeah, there's some interesting. Yeah, there's definitely because it's a Universal Studios picture. You can tell they had like the Universal back lot. They had like yeah. the street sets and yeah. stuff and they look good like they yeah. look you can tell this was filmed in sunlight <laughs> yes. a rarity there was some stuff that was like location looking yeah and yeah. then you have like your actual street sets but it didn't there was no clashing like yeah my immersion wasn't broken yeah. You know? yeah but the cinematographer on this was russell meddy who won the oscar in 1960 for spartacus which we mentioned last week oh, we yeah. talked about bill thomas bill thomas won for costumes for spartacus russell meddy won for cinematography <laughs> so we got two Spartacus alums, Weird. Oscar winners. Yeah. And speaking of costume design, I'll quickly mention the costume designer on this movie was Helen Kolvig. She worked with Clint Eastwood a few times. Right. She did 1971's The Andromeda Strain, which is a really great sci-fi oh. movie based on the oh, Michael Crichton book. Um, and then, yeah, I guess yes. the costumes were okay. I didn't notice anything that was... Yeah, I feel like there was there wasn't anything distracting. Yeah. And yeah, actually, this, these are all from 1971. The Andromeda Strain, Play Misty for Me, which was the first directing debut that Clint Eastwood did mm-hmm. and then Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory hmm. yeah cool 
since it's our final narrative film, we got to mention some alternate titles. And there wasn't really any different titles they were considering in the US, but I'm going to give you some different international titles. Okay. So in Argentina and Colombia, it was called This Is My Way. In Germany, there was a promotional title for it that was Asphalt Melody. Weird. But the final title they went with was A Heavenly Swindle. Okay. Weirder. <laughs> in Turkey, it was called Holy Operation. <laughs> <laughs> I think they should have gone with that one. The Holy Operation is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and then in France, when it was released on home video, they went with Clothes Don't Make the Woman, which is, I guess, part of the idea of the change of habit, like yeah. pun in the title. But when it was theatrically released, it was called The Suburban Angels. Hmm. So these are all just wildly different yeah. interpretations of Very what's going strange. on here. Elvis's character is a doctor. His name is Dr. John Carpenter, MD. Why? Why is his name Dr. John Carpenter? I don't know. Okay. John Carpenter, the director, wasn't a thing yeah. yet. Yeah. He was still in film school because, right. like, he he hits the scene with Dark Star. Right. Oh yeah. Great oh my God. Dark Star. <laughs> yes. What was the sound that fuzzy thing? Dark Star is a sci-fi movie about some astronauts in space, and they're just like, yes. vi- they're just vibing. They're just doing their vibing thing, and they pick up an alien, and he goes. The alien is just a beach ball. It's great. Yeah. It's like a student film that ended up gaining enough money to turn it into a feature. Yeah. And he was buddies with the guy who wrote it is Dan O'Bannon, who went on to write the screenplay for Alien. So this is like the dry run to Alien, but like in a with a comedic version of it because they didn't have the budget to do it properly. That was a great movie. Yes. Another yeah, watch Dark Star. It's great. Nineteen seventy four, that's when that came out. So yeah. Yeah. But of course the most famous connection between John Carpenter and Elvis is that John Carpenter went on to direct the TV movie with Kurt Russell as Elvis in nineteen seventy nine. So it's just weird that full circle. We got yeah, John Carpenter. So uh, Morgan, how many songs in this movie? Okay, three. Oh, so close. (sighs) Four songs. Now closest without going over. (laughs) Yeah. So we have the title track, "Change of Habit." Yeah. That plays over the credits. It's fine. Then there's your favorite rubbernecking. Yeah, rubbernecking. What a great song that was. See, and that's the thing. That wasn't written for this movie. That was a B-side on one of his Yeah, you uh, can, t- you like can tell it wasn't written for this movie. It was, yeah, it was actually recorded during his classic Memphis recording mm-hmm. sessions. Oh, so good. It was the B-side to Don't Cry Daddy, which was like a million seller single. Oh, yeah. And a, a small note on rubbernecking is that just like A Little Less Conversation wasn't that big of a hit when it came out, mm-hmm. but then there was that remix. Oh. There was a remix of Rubbernecking done in 2003 by Paul Oakenfold. Oh, yeah. Paul Oakenfield. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so Paul Oakenfield's like a... He's a he's like a British producer and DJ. Yeah, he used to do a lot of stuff with the Ministry of Sound. I think back in the day, which is like the I'm not sure what the Ministry of Sound is exactly. It's like a collection of artists that come and make electronic music in this certain like studio in the UK area. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of different cool artists come through and, and do groovy stuff. And Paul Oakenfield has been a big like electronics artist in the scene for a long time, like. Longer than like DJ Tiesto and stuff like that. He's yeah. I'm a big electronic fan, so that's really exciting. I, I didn't even mm-hmm. realize that it was him that did that remix. Cool. Yes. And that was used, so like around 2003, there was a bunch of like Toyota commercials and stuff that used that. So most people might remember the remix more than anyone know the original, just like a little less conversation. But right. And yeah, when it was re-released in this remix version, and once again, it like taught the charts. I think it came up at least number two. Wow. So sometimes it takes a bit for people to realize, hey, wait, this is a good tune. <laughs> <laughs> then we have Have a Happy, which is sung on a carousel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, about that fucking carousel scene, like, you know that song? Okay, that- here's, oh, yeah, wait, because I want to say, so you think maybe that they've they've cured 
air quotes here they've cured the uh, the autistic yeah. child right and sh- that she'll leave the movie no no, no she sticks around she, she they keep bringing the her around kid. the park she's the she little, becomes like she's the, the she's the mascot for the movie at this point yes it's super fucked up and they're trying to do a thing right when you see them walking hand in hand with yeah. her that it, they're trying to make like a like a surrogate family unit thing right yeah this was is this what could be if she stopped being a nun and if elvis just yeah, yeah. Oh, God. So I, I want to take a minute to talk. So we all remember, hopefully we all remember, when um, Sia made that movie Music. That was very recent, yes. Which was very recent. And so I heard a lot of the criticisms from the artistic community about why that movie was wrong, in in what ways, why it was wrong. And a lot of those criticisms can be applied to this movie, right? So when somebody is having a meltdown, you do not constrain them. You do not hold them down because people have been killed like that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's true. That's why I think this movie is the worst movie because in Stay Away Joe, they're teaching white people how to be mean towards like quote unquote Indians. But in this movie, they're teaching people how to fucking kill autistic children unknowingly, you know, which is way more damaging. And another thing is that people who are highly autistic do not handle stimuli in the same ways that non-autistic people do. Mm, So bringing mm. a severely autistic child out to a park and putting her on a fucking merry-go-round, not a good idea. Bringing her to a block party... not a good idea. <laughs> but she's she's cured at this point. Yeah, it's, she got over yeah, it. She's cured. Yeah. You just oh, you yeah. can just oh, get yeah. over it. God. Oh god. The body only has a certain amount of rage in it, god. and once yeah, you get rid they, of the rage, then it's all gone. Yeah. Let, let's let's talk about that. They they bring this autistic child in, and they're like, she's autistic. They do it when their parents abandon them. If they're abandoned by their parents, the child is so full of rage and aggression that they recede into themselves. And it's like, okay, first of all. That's not what autism is. They didn't know any better. Oh they didn't God. know it was too still if new they, of a thing. I think yeah. this is one of the first movies to even use the word, no, it's, it's, I think. It, it, it's hard to explain. Like, I understand that I they know. didn't know any better, but I just, how can I explain this? Like, you can see when an autistic person doesn't want somebody to fucking constrain them down. You know, you can see that that's not making somebody happy. And I don't have autism. I know friends that do, but that doesn't give me any right to speak on the subject. So right. correct me if I'm wrong. Please do. I'm I'm very happy to learn. But essentially, you know, if if they're going to have a meltdown, they're going to they're having a meltdown. It isn't for you then to go and stop the meltdown from happening because you don't have autism and you don't know what it's like. You are not experiencing what is happening. And unless you are a trained professional or have been given authority by a trained professional to do something, that's when you can use some sort of decision making, maybe. But this film gives essentially anybody with the balls to treat their own autistic child this way. Anybody with an autistic child could go into this movie theater and be like, oh my God, that's how that happens. That's how that works. I can just cure my autistic child by torturing them. So fucking easy. Why didn't I think of that? You know, uh, 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 uh. it makes me very, very angry. Universal Pictures, I hate you. (laughs) It's very, very unfortunate. You go to jail. You go to the timeout corner. Bad. I got sidetracked by the autism thing again. It just makes me so fucking angry. 
Oh my god. Don't watch this movie. Burn this. I might burn this copy of this, of this movie. <laughs> I won't. I'll keep it. Let's move on to our cast. Okay. We're trying their best. Yeah. Once again, th- a lot of the fault is within the screenplay, obviously. Yeah. I don't, these I, I don't have anything bad to say about the cast because this movie was rotten from the moment it was made and I don't think it has anything to do with the people that were acting in this movie. Mm-hmm. Except for Elvis. Elvis knows better. He should have known better. Bad. Bad Elvis. Bad. You go to the corner too. You go to timeout. Well, he, he took a timeout <laughs> for movies forever. That's what he did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, and I'm glad he did. Okay, so let's talk about... Well, we've already mentioned Mary Tyler Moore, pretty much. Ordinary yeah. people in 1980, the Oscar. So, I mean, everyone knows Mary Tyler Moore. I don't. And if you don't, then... What, I really uh, don't. If you don't, then that's fine, is what I was going to say. <laughs> who is Mary Tyler Moore? She's the lady who played Sister Michelle. And she had a sitcom, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, that lasted so, many, many seasons, won many, many Emmys. Oh, She wow. co-starred in that series with Ed Asner, who plays the cop. Oh. So they don't share any scenes in this movie, but they actually went on to star in a sitcom together. And he got his character, Lou Grant, got its own spinoff show because it was so popular. And that lasted many seasons. And it's funny because the Mary Tyler Moore show was a comedy, but the Lou Grant spinoff show was actually a drama. Oh, weird. The last time we talked about Ed Asner, we mentioned this because he was actually in Kid Galahad. Oh, who was he playing? That was his film debut. He played like the district attorney who showed up in like one scene to talk to like the owner of the gym. Right. Yeah. That's not the only Kid Galahad connection, but we'll let me jump back to sister irene played by barbara mcnear Mm -hmm. so she played mrs tibbs she played valerie tibbs in the two sequels they did to in the heat of the night opposite Cindy poitier Mm. that was 1970s they call me mr tibbs and 1971s (laughs) the organization (laughs) okay but very interesting she actually began in music she was a singer so during the 1950s she did a whole nightclub circuit and then in 58, she released her debut single, Till There Was You, from Coral Records, which was a big success. Mm. And she performed all around the world, and she even toured with Nat King Cole, and later oh, appeared wow. in his Broadway stage shows, I'm With You and The Merry World of Nat King Cole in the early 60s. I see. Very, very cool. And then she pivoted into movies, which is this period, like pretty early on, and then the opposite Cindy Plotzi in those sequels. And then she kind of went back to singing hmm. in the latter part of her career. So yeah. Interesting. That's nice. Yeah. And then the third of our main sisters is Sister Barbara, yeah. played by Jane Elliott. She's the most uh, headstrong one, I guess you should say. Yeah. She is soap opera royalty. Oh, really? Yes. She is in still. Like, she started in 1978, and she is still in 2022 playing the character of Tracy Quartermain in General Hospital. Oh, shit. 977 episodes. Holy One of fuck. the great soap opera villains with a, a great name. Wow. So it was actually, this is how the timeline goes. It was 78 to 80, then 89 to 93, then 96, then 2003 to 2017, then came back in 2019 and is still going. Wow. In current episodes. And that's not all, That's not her only one. Because you think, like, you've got one soap opera you're set. But no, she also appeared in 192 episodes of Days of Our Lives. Oh, shit. As another fantastically named Angelica Devereaux. Oh, my gosh. That's very cool. So, yeah, she's great, obviously. And this was, yeah, you, if you saw at the beginning, it said, and introducing. So this was her first movie. Oh. But she had done some TV and then would go on to be more famous for all her soap opera work. Right. She definitely won like a daytime Emmy for General Hospital, I'm pretty sure. Cool. And then... So what you're saying is she's a total fucking baller. Yeah. Nice. I'm glad that this wasn't her peak. (laughs) God. (laughs) No, this was not anyone's peak. Yeah. Which is good. (laughs) It's always nice. 
So we talked about Edward Asner. He plays Lieutenant Moretti in this. He was the assistant district attorney in Kid Galahad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Lou Grant and all this stuff. He was also, the last time we mentioned him in the Kid Galahad episode, we mentioned that he played Carl Fredrickson in Up. He was the main, he's the old man in Up. Right, 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 right. A lot of voice acting. He's also the cop in Freakazoid. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's great. I love Freakazoid. (laughs) Yes. Then we have uh, Mother Joseph. The, the nun superior <laughs> who's like right. kind of uh, on their side, you know, yeah. one of the few people will be like, I can see your point of view. Right. Yeah. She's played by Leora Dana. She played Mrs. Alice Evans in 1957's 310 to Yuma. Oh. And then the year after this, she appeared in Tora 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 in 1970, which was oh. that big movie about Pearl Harbor. Yes. Uh, yeah. Famous, famous film. Big. A lot of war movies all of a sudden coming out, eh? Yes. Well, not coming out, but like, a lot of like connected a to lot this. of connected yeah. tissue yeah she's not the only 310 to yuma person because the banker oh, we didn't mention him but he's this guy he's he owns the neighborhood right and he's yeah. going around breaking legs if people don't pay he's their the, debts he's the mob essentially yes but you can tell that's the other thing in this movie that they aren't quite able to get right is even the mob like for all their pissing about with all these social issues, they really, mm-hmm. f- that you know, that's where it's like, dude, if you don't know what you're talking about, just shut the fuck up. Just stop talking. You can tell that nobody in this movie who, nobody who was in charge of making this movie knew what the hell they were talking about when they were like, what does a mobster do? They were like, I don't know. He's mean. Then he takes people's money for no reason. But if you humiliate him in a public setting, then he'll just walk away with his tail between his legs and everything will be fine. (laughs) No no charges laid against him. No arrests. No nothing. No justice. Elvis will give him one good right hook and he'll be like, ooh, my cheek. And then he'll walk away. You know, I will say that my favorite part of this movie is when the mobster punches the nun. That made me She laugh. goads him into it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's like, oh, what she's you gonna like, do? You're gonna what are you going to do? You're going to punch a nun in front of all these people? Good public relations. And then he just decks her. <laughs> I don't know why. I just found that really mm-hmm. hilarious. And Elvis is there watching it unfold because he's waiting. Like, this is his cue. He knows that as soon as that guy throws the punch, then he's, yeah. he's all bets are off and a bunch of fists are flying everywhere. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah that's when the cop comes in. And then he's like, oh, everything's fine. <laughs> Yeah, everything's We're keeping fine. the order here. Cool, cool. All right. Sure. <laughs> Anyways, the banker is played by Robert Amhart. Oh. Who played Maynard the cook in Kid Galahad. Remember the cook? The fun chef oh, guy? Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, damn. So talk about range. He could be a fun cook, but now here he is. Well, actually, <laughs> that's the thing we mentioned a, was he's that- He's a fun mobster. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We mentioned in the Kid Galahad episode, he was actually more known for playing skeezy politicians or characters like that. So the the cook character was actually like an outlier because usually he didn't play a good guy. Right, 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 right. Because when you have a certain look as a character actor, yeah. you know, they like put you in these kind Type of roles. Cast. I did like, he had some really sweet shades. There was a lot of nice sunglasses. There was movie. some nice sunglasses that happened in this film. But he is also from 310 to Yuma. He played Mr. Butterfield. Right, right, right. In that film. Then we have Regis Toomey, who plays Father Gibbons. Awful character. Yes. He's all like, I don't know. He's the old, set in his ways. And I mean, they don't portray him as a good person. No, they're, no. they're, they're like, he's like the enemy because he's... He Doesn't hates wanna... women. Just hates them. Fuck. They're nuns. Mm-hmm. They're literal nuns. They're literal freaking nuns. And he's still here's finds here's a, a point they bring up in the it. here's a point they bring up in the movie that's it's a, a positive, a good thing I think that they yeah. address, and that is still an ongoing issue. Is there's a part where she's saying we need to, we should make the sermons more accessible. You should be doing the mass in Spanish. You should be able to bring in, and that's still a thing that like right, isn't yeah. as widespread as it should be. Well, 
you know how I feel about organized religion, Matt. So maybe well, I'm just yes, obviously that's the whole aspect. I'm <laughs> but just for saying for those of us who do want more accessible religion, that's for a fair better point. or worse. <laughs> yes, it should be made accessible to other bigoted communities rather than just white bigoted communities. I agree. <laughs> Sorry, 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 folks. Sorry, audience. So he has a 271 credits. Big okay. time character actor as well. Here's some stuff he was in that's better than this movie. His Girl Friday, 1940. Fantastic. Oh. Spellbound, 1945. Hitchcock, very good. Uh, 1946 is The Big Sleep. Humphrey oh, Bogart, shit. classic. Oh, cool. Yes. Oh, damn. Even 1955's Guys and Dolls, which oh, is a nice. fun musical. Cool. And he plays a character named The Bishop. I wasn't able to, I did uh, just quick research and I couldn't determine whether he actually is a bishop or he's just an informer that's codenamed the bishop. But in the 1967 movie Gun, which is based... Oh God, I know this movie. I haven't seen it, but I know the movie because how can you have a movie that's just called Gun? <laughs> With two ends. Yeah. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> Maybe yes. Gonna... I was going to say, you know, this is actually a, a continuation of a TV series called Peter Gunn. It was a, he was a detective, uh, but he's in 1967's Gun, which co-starred Ed Asner as Peter Gunn's cop friend. Right. So there is Ed Asner playing a cop once again. The series itself lasted three seasons and 114 episodes, and the main character of Peter Gunn, he reprised his role, but his girlfriend from the series did not come back for the movie, but in the series, she was played by Lola Albright, who was Dolly Fletcher in Kid Galahad. Oh, shit. So there's a lot of Kid Galahad connections here. Damn. Only a few more characters that I want to mention. So we have, here's another fun bit in this film. There's this young lady, 17 years old, oh God. who has a crush on Elvis. Oh, yeah. Desiree, she's played by Laura Figueroa. Oh, this would be a good time to bring up the fact that um, yes. this movie is like really, really mean to Puerto Rican people, like super mean. So we've talked about how they're bad to autistic people and to black people and to women. Um, every Puerto Rican in this movie that isn't like an elderly person is framed as either a prostitute if they're a woman or a lazy bum and a drunkard if they're a man. It's really shitty. I just wanted to, you know, a lot of the times we underlook one marginalized group above some of the worst treatments of others and just wanted to remind everyone that this movie is mean to everyone if there was asian mm -hmm. people in this movie they would be singing another china song like they did in that one other fucking elvis movie <laughs> girls 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 yes girls 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 oh my god <sighs> so this so Take it away, yes. Matt. Yeah. this was her film debut only eight credits the year after this she appeared in a movie where she was a member of a street gang no. <laughs> that was called The Cross and the Switchblade. It was another religious angled film. This one was based on a true story as well. And oh I'm God. air quotes, you know, as much as these things are ever based on true stories. Yeah. Then there's Amanda, who is portraying an autistic girl. This is her only film. Okay. And I don't really have anything else I could find, but her name is uh, Lorena Kirk. And then there's Julio, Julio Hernandez, who's in the most scenes as well as another patient. He yeah. has kind of a stutter. He has an abusive father. Yeah, uh, so his, whole other his thing characters too. is really complicated. It seems like they were trying to go with one angle for this character, but they didn't know like what to do. They're trying to surmise that the his behavioral problems are entirely associated with his speech problems. That that's if they can just fix the way he 
interacts with mm-hmm. society that, that everything and that both fits. of those things are directly tied to him feeling like insecurity in his own masculinity <laughs> or something because yeah he's able to speak better if he's holding a pointed like he's holding scissors at one point or a, a straight up a knife near the end of the movie and yeah. he's like this makes me feel like a big man and so if i'm a big man then i can it's like ugh, it's a whole yeah it's it's really really weirdly, strange yeah there's a lot going on there just it's in that bad uh, God, but this was <laughs> also his only film. His his name is Nefty Millet. Okay. Other than this film, he appeared in an episode of the TV series McCloud in 1970, and that's that's his only two credits. Ah. Then I've only got three more people, including those two Ooh. Black Panther guys. Oh God. But yeah. first, we're going to talk about Bishop Finley. Right. Bishop Finley is in the one scene, and he's the one who's trying to hear out Father Gibbons' side of things and the nuns' side of things, and he's the younger. He's the true father figure of the nuns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see he's more yeah. understanding and whatnot. Anyways, he's another longtime Universal Studios contract player. In the 50s, he had the lead role of John Putnam in It Came From Outer Space, 1953. Putnam in what? Class. <laughs> <laughs> Putnam, right where the sun don't shine, Morgan. <laughs> he was also the All lead... Right. <laughs> of Dr. David Reed in Creature from the Black Lagoon from 1954, which we oh! mentioned, of course, because Julie Adams, who was the female lead of Creature from the Black Lagoon, was in Tickle Me. She played the boss who owned the ranch. Right, 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 right. And Richard Carl. Oh, yeah, this guy's name is Richard Carlson, by the way. He's in- he- so he's the one playing Bishop Finley. And Richard Carlson was also in 1968's The Power with George Hamilton, which is that cool oh. psychic noir my kind of uh my boyfriend film. just watched it recently he said it was pretty good yeah it's got it's got some interesting ideas and some really cool creative mm-hmm. stuff like the way mm-hmm. they portray having hallucinations or something due to these psychic powers right yes the power okay so then we've yeah. got the two guys okay so we've got william elliott who plays robbie mm-hmm. he played dr leopold in night of the lepus from 1972 which is a famous bad movie about a bunch of giant bunnies attacking a town it's maybe the most adorable horror movie ever made because what oh. they did was that they just had regular size bunnies in a scale model town oh. and then they shot them in slow motion to make it look like they're bigger and like rumbling around <laughs> but they still look so cute because there's not much you can do to make them look oh. mean or anything yeah you can't really make a bunny look evil yeah i think they even go like they put a they have them like have a little ketchup you know oh like, my to god show, like oh they, they bit someone the blood oh no Oh, they're gonna get me. It's really, really funny. Um That's really funny. And other than that, he he co-starred with Pam Greer in Coffee from nineteen seventy three, which is a classic black exploitation film. He got fourth billing in that. Okay. Yeah, and like Pam Greer was like the queen of those, and that's why of course she was in Jackie Brown, because obviously Tarantino, big fan. Yeah. And then there's there was the other guy too. Yes, the other guy's name is Hawk. He's played by G2 Kumbuka. Oh, cool. Okay. He played Cicero in Mandingo, which is a real... If you think oh. this movie's bad, there's a really bad film from 1975 called Mandingo, which is, once again, another Tarantino connection because yeah. they talk about Mandingo fighting in Django Unchained. They got that term from this movie. Oh, I see. Because it is about an 1840 slave owner who trains one of his slaves to be a bare-knuckle fighter. Right. And it's... That sounds really, really bad. bad. Like when that came out in 75, people were like, this is, I, Roger Ebert's review was like zero stars. And he said, this is racist trash. Wow. <laughs> like Holy just, shit. Yeah. Anyways. Um, I do want to talk about the scene that these two folks are in. Sure. And about the conversation. When they, when they stop scene. Sister Irene as she's coming down the stairs. Yeah. So Sister Irene, you know, it's not, 
shouldn't come as any surprise that Elvis keeps the two white nurses close by as secretaries and then sends the black nurse out into the burbs to do the grit work. Ooh, get in the mud. Get dirty with it. Like, whatever. But anyway, you know, so she's in this neighborhood and she's just leaving from a patient and these two guys stop her. And they're obviously modeled to embody the Black Panther. Yes, they never say it, but they've got the, the look. Yeah. And how to describe the look, it wasn't necessarily the way that they were dressed, although the shades didn't help, <laughs> of course, but it was also the rhetoric. So they appropriated talking points about black nationalism that you might have heard from the Black Panthers and tried to have it suit this narrative where they questioned this nurse about how she's participating in this society. And she is a black nurse. She's working in a community to help marginalized people. And they're giving her shit because she's being too white about it. And that is something that happens in color communities. And I know this because I've experienced it myself from my own communities as an indigenous person. Sometimes you'll you'll meet somebody and if you have a certain way of holding yourself, of talking yourself that has been very influenced by white communities and white society, sometimes your own community will say, now, wait a minute, you know, how can we trust that you know who we are really and, and what we're about? But it doesn't happen like this. It doesn't happen when you see other people actually fucking doing the work to help people in their communities. So that was one thing. And it's fine that they couldn't quite get that right. I don't like it, but I can live with that. What I couldn't live with was the fact that she then went to her white boss and explained to him how she had been living a lie and she was trying to get away from being a black person by Mm -hmm. doing white people like what like by being a nurse by helping the marginalized community i don't i and you that's the point that you could tell that what this movie wanted to do was find a way for black people to merge into white society on their terms Right. So she has to be the perfect black woman in this movie. Not only does she have to be the hardest working one on the job, she also has to be black enough for her black community, but white enough to coexist with white people. And this movie is framing that in such a way that those two things can't happen or that they're not homogenous. You know, that's my problem with this, the portrayal in this is that they want black people, but they don't want them to be very dark. You know what I mean? Mm. Very much like that. I fucking hate this movie so much. I know. (laughs) My God. Okay. Who else do we have to talk about? That was it for the people. Um, I am very excited to hear that. A few last trivia points, maybe. Yeah, let's do it. Got here. Oh yeah, don't forget the time that the Puerto Rican men were helping the lady bring her furniture in, and she was like, "Oh, are you sure that you can handle that?" And they turned to her and they were like, "What do you think we are? A bunch of f words slur for gay people." (laughs) Oh, that I was trying to remember where you were coming with that, and now now I do remember that. That's where it was from. That was just a one-off, but there it was. There it was. They couldn't help (laughs) themselves. Just had to throw it in 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 passing. They couldn't fucking help themselves. God. So yeah, we had both that word and the N-word. Yeah. It was great. Definitely thrown out there. Cool, cool, cool. Cool, 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 cool. There's a scene when Elvis is playing 
the piano and Mary Tyler Moore is on the guitar. Yeah. And he actually he teaches her like the chords and then the tune they're playing together is Lottie Miss Claudie. Oh. Which of course he first recorded in 1956. Oh. And this is so this is technically the only recorded performance of this song that features him playing the piano. Oh, cool. So I guess we'll just skip to the end of the movie where it's left ambiguous as to whether Mary Tyler Moore is going to give up being a nun. Yeah, she's going to stop being a nun to go marry Elvis. Because Elvis is singing in the church at the end and she, there's just a look and the camera zooms in on her and it's all... Oh. She's like, oh my gosh. According to the director... He says they definitely, she would choose Elvis. Okay. Glad we figured that That's out. Where, <laughs> that's where he that stands on that. That was the problem that we I know we don't like a- ambiguity up in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yes, this is the film that Elvis was contractually obligated to make because <laughs> it was a package deal with the 68 comeback special, remember? Right. Colonel Tom Parker said for $1,250,000, because usually his, his paycheck was a million per picture, but at this point... We were on the outs, right? Things weren't yeah. making as much money and stuff. So he said, okay, well, how about package deal? It's going to be $1,250,000 for both a movie and a TV special. And the TV special was the 68 comeback special. Right. And this was the movie because it's NBC. Right. Which is another f- interesting point is that this was produced by NBC and distributed by Universal. And this is like 35 years before those two firms would actually merge. Oh, interesting. Because these days they're one and the same. NBC is Universal and vice versa. Right. I guess we didn't mention there's a football game. We, we were mentioning last week yeah, that there was going to be football more game. football. And this is, uh, there you go. Touch football <laughs> in the park. There's a bit of a, I saw a karate chop in this movie too. Mm, well, yeah. When he gets into the scuffle yeah. at the, the block party. They had it still all. Hands. They gave it they everything exactly jack of all trades master of none (laughs) yeah um and this is just completely the most random thing but it says this is the only film starring elvis which wasn't released theatrically in finland (laughs) guess they knew better (laughs) i don't know (laughs) they gave one look at this and no this does not pass clearance glad that you found that that cleared that up for us matt we were all wondering whether or not this one was i'm just going on what was written on imdb (laughs) as always so (laughs) Take it up with whoever's editing that. No, but allegedly, Elvis Presley actually used the name John Carpenter as a alias when he was traveling or like staying at a hotel or something. Oh, really? It was either John Carpenter or sometimes he would go by John Burroughs, apparently. Oh, weird. I, here you go. Last thing I want to say. So there's a part where the nuns are settled into their new place, this little basement thing. And they take they take a, some food out of the oven. Yeah. And oh, then, yeah. Like, Let's talk like, about the noodle ring. Noodle ring. Yeah. What is the deal with the noodle what ring? What is a noodle ring? <laughs> I don't know. Let's find out. Picture perfect noodle ring. Holy shit, does this thing look gross? <laughs> oh, it sounds. I'm glad we can end on this because this is very important. This is this was let like me, very <laughs> yeah, troubling. Let me read you the ingredients. What you'll need to make a noodle ring: one eight ounce package of fine egg noodles. So think like spaghetti, but even like spaghettini. Yes. Okay? thinner one can cream of mushroom soup Mm -hmm. one cup of sour cream two tablespoons of melted butter a tablespoon of worcestershire sauce two beaten eggs two cups of cheese two cups of frozen broccoli thawed and one package of onion soup mix and then you basically cook the noodles and mix all the ingredients and put it into the pan and cook it (laughs) and you cook it for like an hour (laughs) right yeah, and from what I can see here, it seems like this was like a 1940s thing. Yeah, you can obviously tell it was a 1940s thing. I mean, I'd give it a try at least. I'd, I'll have a noodle ring and I'll have a clam bake. These are two things that we've established will, <laughs> are probably worth pursuing. Yeah, I'd do a clam bake, but I Just definitely will not ever be eating a noodle ring. Maybe one day I'll make a noodle ring for a potluck and just really frighten the rest of the guests. It's a noodle ring. Yeah. They could have called it something else. Like, why didn't they call it like a pasta ring? No. 
pasta bake or some shenanigans. Noodles, you know? fun. Noodles, and fun <laughs> words. Okay. Okay. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up, ladies and gentlemen. This has been our change of habit episode. We have hit the thirty-first <laughs> of the thirty-one Elvis movies. My mind has expanded with the knowledge of thirty-one Elvis movies. I honestly feel like I could take people in a fight better now that I know all of the Elvis movies. <laughs> They'll be like, whoa, man, that's karate. I don't want to mess with that. Like, I'm going to put this on my gravestone. Morgan Kagashange watched all 31 Elvis movies, died a loyal fan. <laughs> I'm going to play Elvis music at my funeral. We're still going to do, maybe not next week, but in the near future, another, uh, like a wrap up. Yeah. We'll talk we'll about some- the... We'll do the rankings and yes, uh, we're gonna talk about. Looks the like meetings. we got a pretty good idea of what's gonna be at the bottom now. <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah, we are pretty certain which film <laughs> sucks the hardest. And I'm gonna go on record right now saying, yeah? here, you're gonna hear me say this. Okay. After the Boz Lerman movie is out, that is officially. I'm saying this 100. percent I can't take it back. This is out here. I'm putting it on record. Uh-huh. We're done. That is uh-huh. the logical endpoint of this whole endeavor. Okay. There'll be nowhere else to go. There better not be. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> oh, God. So uh, I would like to personally thank all of the fans who came to join us on this journey. But maybe I'll save that for the next episode. Maybe I'll give you guys a big speech that how would you like that? Freaking smash that like button if you want to see me give you a big, yeah. big thank you speech in the next episode. If you've actually been watching along, like finding these movies to watch, oh then God. Wow, extra like you deserve kudos a round of applause. Honestly, oh yeah, shout out to Matt's mom, the real. Oh, baller. actually, you know what she did? She did the smart thing, mm-hmm. and she saved Wild in the Country for last because she knew oh. it was one of our favorite. Oh, that's so great. She, what is that's she's so much smarter so than us? Yeah. <laughs> She'll be able to end on a high note. Yeah. Oh, bless her. Bless her Her beautiful soul. Shout out to Matt. Always, I want to give a shout out to Matt. He's the guy behind this entire operation. I know I you maybe we seem to think sometimes that I wear the pants around here. I don't. <laughs> Matt does all the She's editing. almost never wearing pants when I, we that, record. It it's is actually true. quite distracting. I'm not wearing pants right now. They're not even pants. They're... I, well, I won't explain to you what they are, but use your imagination, folks, because yeah, they fill in sure the ain't pantaloons. <laughs> no, um, yeah, no, shout out to Matt. He's the brains behind this operation. He does all of the editing, all of the scheduling, all of the research. You know, he's put a lot of effort into this. So uh, round of applause for Matt. Woo! Well, thank you. Yeah. And I live to give a special thanks to me for showing up and barely doing the bare minimum. Congratulations, Morgan. You did it. <laughs> You've succeeded. Uh, have I? <laughs> have I succeed? Is this success? Will success spoil Morgan Kagashanke? <laughs> so, okay, we're going to see you next, probably next week. So stay tuned for a very special episode where we bid a sort of farewell, but not a real farewell because we're probably going to do a concert series. Yeah. We're going to go. A farewell off. to doing this weekly or even like yeah. bi weekly. A like, farewell to the 31 films. You know? Just a pleasant goodbye. I'm going to bring a noisemaker. Some kind of... Oh, that's going to be fun. It'll be great. (laughs) I can't wait. It super won't be annoying and clippy on the microphone at all. For sure. (laughs) I guess that's everything for this week's episode, Matt. Unless you have anything you'd like to tell the lovely fans. No, I think you've said all there needs to be said. Uh, I mean, we're on Twitter at ElvisHasLeftPod. Yep. And you can... find the podcast on most podcast services i mean if you're listening to it now you've obviously already found one that <laughs> <laughs> i mean 
which I just realized <laughs> it's kind of a redundant it, yeah, thing you've made it to say at the end episodes. of yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. If you started with this episode, bold choice, but okay. Yeah, bold, bold decision. Uh, if you started with this episode, you get a gold star from me personally. Ooh, actually, if you started with this episode. You have nowhere to go but up, actually, because like the that majority of these movies are better. That is true, yeah. So maybe. maybe you do know what's up. Maybe you do deserve that gold star. <laughs> and with that, we're going to say thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much.